I thought today we could, uh, well, last week what I said was we'll, we'll reflect more on chapter 5 of Revelation. So that's what we'll primarily focus on. But as usual, as we encounter things, you have questions or different things come to mind. We'll explore them as we go. But uh, as usual, I'll maybe try to take five minutes just to rehearse a little bit in our minds what we've done and some things we've said, where we're at, and then we'll just let it, we'll just let things kind of go, evolve here. But we'll, we'll read some from chapter five, the very end of four as well, but uh, we'll mainly talk about five and the grand implications again of its meaning and its impact on the rest of the book for us as we understand it. So just to recap, uh, and get our mental gears turning if they're cold this morning too that there are 22 chapters in the book and the the numbers up top just really highlight maybe an, a structure to keep in mind as we're reading it and that is that in the very beginning what we've seen in chapter one Jesus discloses a little bit about himself in a vision and it's the letter, the whole book is the letter to the church, right? We identified that pretty early. Chapter 1 and 22 make clear he begins and ends. And so we don't want to read just chapters 2 and 3 as the letters to the church, but the whole book. In the beginning of the letter to the church, he speaks to seven different churches individually. And that's how that first three chapters works out. And then when we arrive to chapters 4 and 5, this vision of the throne room, what we observed was that this begins or sets in motion everything else that follows from chapter 6 really to the end, but primarily up through 19, as the scroll is mentioned in chapters 4 and 5. And that's the predominant thing that's happening in the book. The Lamb is opening the scrolls, and then things start happening as he um, breaks the seals. I should say the seals on the scroll breaks the seals and there's trumpets blowing and then there are these bowls being poured out but that begins in chapters four and five so it's it's the beginning of this major chunk of the book and so whatever however we understand chapters four and five is very important because it affects what happens next right if this is and actually throughout throughout the visions of the book in this part this is the main of the book. Throughout it, it keeps referencing the Lamb and the throne room. And it keeps referencing back to these chapters, that, that this is occurring under the watch of the Lamb. So one, one thing we noticed that we observed, might be obvious, but maybe not reflected on enough, is uh, all the chaos that's described in the chapters. The dragon, the beast, the prostitute, Two witnesses, the chaos on the earth, the judgment, the destruction, the fire, the moon falling, moon turning into blood, stars falling, everything that occurs, they are occurring because the Lamb in chapters 4 and 5 has been releasing or breaking these seals and authorizing those things to occur. So that's, that's one big major theme of the book, is the Lamb in control of what's happening on earth, what's happening in heaven. Nothing is, he's not, the book is not describing this, this battle, this drama between the lamb and it's the forces of the dragon. Even though there is a battle, it's not describing that there's like this uh, arm wrestling match and he's trying to win and it's, oh, what's going to happen towards the end? And then he comes and he wins. It's just describing what started in four and five. God gave all the authority to the lamb and then at the end he just... He, he finalizes it, but the whole thing he has been orchestrating to arrive at its desired end. 
So that's supposed to be like an encouragement to those churches in two and three that we saw that were facing opposition. Some of them were living in the throne of Satan. Some of them were lazy. Some of them had lost their first love. All these encouragements are coming because the Lamb is in control and he's ruling over things. So he's telling them what they have to do and then he's revealing what's behind the scenes, what's happening surrounding them. All right, that's a big 30,000 foot picture, right? Overview of the, of the whole thing. And we'll take one second or two or 20 to pause here. And is there a thought, an observation, a comment, or a clarifying question, right? Those can be very helpful. Do we need to be reminded of something? Can I, can I help remind you of something? What does it mean, Satan's throne room? It's, when I, I read that and I, I, in my mind, I picture a place where he's staying, right? But yet he's not staying somewhere. He's all over the place. How so, does that work? Yeah, so if I remember, this is from the church in Pergamum, right, in chapter 2 the letter to the church of Pergamum, where God says, I know where you are. Is that, is that what it is? Or is that uh, Smyrna? It's Pergamum. And he's like, I know where you live. You live in Satan's throne or throne whatever area or something like that. And when he says that, uh, people historically have tried to identify one of Caesar's big governing centers. And there was this big throne room. So I could probably find a link for you to this, but someone has research the ancient, um, this big seat that supposedly Hitler went and grabbed and tried to bring to Germany to kind of be part of his museum of historical artifacts. And he wanted to use it as like bringing awe and whatever to his future kingdom. But anyways, it, it, came, from some, it came from something about World War II that I was looking at. And people have speculated that the reason that letter says that is because there was this large Roman presence in the town and that used the throne. That, that's possible. But regardless, there is no satanic throne and worship of Satan in that city that we know of. So that the mention of that, along with other symbols in the letters to the churches, like uh, Jezebel and Balaam, that's a hint to us that when John is writing, he, he is writing th kind of like assuming that we know the Old Testament to some degree. The story of the Old Testament. He's, it's almost like he's winking. You know, this, this is a place where that, that ancient enemy of ours has a presence, has a foothold. He's not, I don't think he's saying quite literally, this is actually where Satan's throne is, right? This is the one place where he rules from. I don't think that's the point. It's, it's more or less like you have a very visible, tangible expression of the enemy forces. And so he kind of uses it in a very loose way as he does Jezebel and Balaam, two characters that are dead, long gone, but he acts as if they're alive in the letters to the churches. So he's referencing Old Testament imagery and ideas, and that, that already alerts us. We talked about this a little bit, that there's a lot of imagery and images, imagery and images, just images in the book that uh, if we become familiar with, we can see that he's not, he's not trying to talk literally about the things that he's saying. He's making a lot of for, for example, here's a really good example of chapter 1, the description of Jesus with the color of his hair, what's happening with his eyeballs, they're on fire, uh, what he's dressed as. Those are all descriptions of things from the Old Testament, primarily God himself. 
and uh, what, what he's doing. It's God and priestly actions. It's not meant to describe for us literally when we see Jesus, this is what we're going to see. Same thing with chapter 19. Jesus comes down on a white horse and he's got a tattoo on his thigh. That's not meant for us to think about you know, what, what's the tattoo parlor in heaven? That he, he didn't have that on earth. Did he get it while he was up there? And then when he comes down, are we going to get one of those? Like, it's not meant to be literal descriptions of him, but it's meant to get us to think about the meaning that it represents. We talked about the color of his hair in chapter 1 representing his eternity. That's part of what that meant as it described God in the Old Testament. So it's going to be a challenge to think of these images, ponder these images like throne room, and then think about what does it mean. So, if I can just keep babbling on your one question, Claude. Chapters 4 and 5 describe Jesus. Uh, what's the image of Jesus in chapter 5 at the throne room? Right? We, a lamb, right? We, we don't think, that, that's, just a, that's just a metaphor, right? We don't think that when we see Jesus, we're going to see an animal. And then we're not going to see an animal with its neck, you know, half cut off with blood dangling down. We're not, that's what a slain lamb would look like, something punctured with the blood letting out. The image is to get us to think about what Jesus did, the type of sacrifice that he offered. It's not meant to be a, oh, that's what we're really going to see and touch. Because that would be in conflict with chapter 1, where he's wearing a robe, and he looks pretty powerful, and he's strong, and he sees everything. He can't be, he can't be these two literal things at the same time. But they can both describe him in two different ways. Does that make sense? Sorry, we, we, we really went far on a small question, but that's really important for this whole book, is how we do we understand the images that we see. They're meant to get us to think and to think about who God is, what he's done, and then the images that relate towards us to think about what does that tell us about ourselves and our present existence and struggle. Like the lampstands, for instance. The church could be described any number of ways. And later on, it's going to be described as a bride, uh, but here it's described as lampstands. I just spit a mile. And I wanted to acknowledge that in case anybody else saw that. <laughs> uh, lampstand, it's supposed to shine a light. It's supposed to illuminate the things that are around it, right? That imagery isn't necessarily carried all the way through the rest of the book. It's just meant to get us to reflect on our role. And the idea with the messages is these things can get in the way of our light shining, the things that Jesus identifies in the chapter. It's not meant to say that, that there is literally this lampstand in heaven that is us somehow, and that there's, there's this spiritual light going up. That's not the idea, right? So we're going to face that throughout the book. How do we deal with the images? What do they mean? When is something not just an image? You know, the dragon that we see in chapter 12, is, is Satan really this big dragon? That Those are the kinds of things that will come up quite, quite a bit. So keep bringing the question up as you encounter it but does that make sense that that idea that we're it, it makes sense in the fact that he's everywhere and will dwell here if i allow him sure and that's the part that kind of gets me when i read that where it's where it reads like it's so stationed and that's not how it is like pergamum being a station Right? He's not saying the church, you are the throne room of Satan. It's more like that city has given itself over to uh, something, and he's calling it Satan. So what we're going to see later in the book, this is part of what we talked about. Some things that show up in the letters are very confusing. 
And it's very possible that the visions that come later in the book help make better sense of how could Satan have a throne room anywhere on earth for that matter. Right? Because in chapter 12, he's kicked out of heaven in a war, and he's just running around on the earth in chapter 12. He doesn't have a throne anywhere. He's removed from his place. So there's multiple things that we'll see later that I think will help make sense of things that we hear and read earlier in the book. Okay, and anything else? Any other comment or observation here about the, what we kind of have up on the board? I think it is a no, or a not yet. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully we'll get there. Okay. I make sure I put in this so I didn't forget myself. Oh, that's for today, not for previous. No, yeah, so that we can. We, we're obviously not going to read all those today, but uh, just to reference them, and if you wanted to read them, maybe if you don't get to it, read it for next time, kind of a thing. Okay. I was hoping to arrive there today at some point, uh, but if we don't, then that's fine. We have next week. All right, so then chapter 5. Let's let's return to chapter 5 and what we did last time was read chapters 4 and 5. We read the whole thing through to have that under our belt. And it is a vision of uh, it's definitely describing God, the creator God and his ruling center, which shows up a couple of times in the Old Testament. But the difference here is that there's another character that shows up that nowhere else is, is, exists in the Bible. Right? When we see God in the heavenly council, it's just Yahweh and his created creatures and other you know, interesting beings, but he's the only one on the throne. No one else is with him anywhere. And in this scene probably as clear as anywhere in the New Testament about who Jesus is, the doubts have been erased from our minds when we get to this chapter. So just look, look at how incredibly strong this is. And I want to read just two things from chapter 4. We need it to, to really feel the impact of this. Chapter 4, verse 8. It says, The four living creatures, each of them with six wings and full of eyes all around and within which is kind of gross. And day and night, they never cease saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So we have no question as to who this is. This is the creator God, the almighty God. And so he gets all this glory, verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive, and if you want to highlight that word, this, this word gets repeated quite a bit, to receive. I'll say something about that in a minute. So, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things by your will they exist and were created. So this is the one God of Israel, the creator God. And he's at this place where everyone is recognizing him. Everyone is saying how great he is. All created beings know him. There's nothing up there that is unaware of, of who he is. So everyone acknowledges him and declare how great, awesome, holy that he is. And then when we talk about what is said of the Lamb... Uh, towards the end of chapter 5, so verses 11 and onward, read this. Now, just exactly with that in mind. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures, right, those four that we just mentioned, 
and also these extra elders, we heard the voice of angels, myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive this same kind of framing, worthy to receive, worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne, presumably the creator God, and to the lamb. Here's that extra addition. That's pretty crazy. We're exalting Jesus, who's represented as a, as a slain lamb. He's got the same status. They're both together up there. There is no you know, differentiation. He's sharing with the glory of the Creator God. To the throne and the Lamb be blessing, honor, glory, and might forever and ever. God doesn't share His glory with anybody. He, do, he does not do that. There is no, you know, one God, one A, God, one B. There isn't any of that. So the fact that the Lamb is right there with Him, this is also one of the dramatic meanings of this, these chapters. Jesus is the same, absolutely the same as the God, the one who sits on the throne. They both deserve to receive honor and glory and power. They receive it from all the created beings. They're all recognizing him, and they're all going to, everything else that isn't right now will also recognize him uh, for that. So that's one big shocker of chapters 4 and 5. We talked about the purpose of Revelation, to reveal Jesus. This is one of the big things the book reveals, and maybe in ways that aren't as clear throughout the Gospels. Maybe that's a weird way to put it. But this is just undeniably clear. Jesus is God. Same footing. They both are up there receiving all the glory from the created beings. So far, so good? Now, what makes him, in this chapter anyway, worthy of that or of that position is what we're going to look at, that we just kind of read over, but we did reference quite a bit in verses 9 and 10, this description of what the Lamb has done. So when he's, when he's introduced in the beginning of the chapter, there is this drama of, of this book, and there's a book up there, and no one can seem to open it. Matter of fact, why don't we just read through that too? So from 5, 1 and on. So I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So right hand, this again brings us back to the, to the Old Testament. It's kind of like God's ruling arm. Um, David, or the rulers of Israel, they're considered his right, at his right, they're at the right side anyway of God. It's, it's, what he, it's a metaphor to describe how God exercises his rule. So in the vision up at the throne room, at the, at the right side, it's just, it's going with what has always been it's never at the left side. You're never going to hear that imagery. It's just, but it's just consistent imagery with this is how God exercises his rule and his power. <laughs> yeah, you, you could even uh, say that. But the right is really consistent. When Jesus is exalted, it's at the right hand of the Father. It's, that's, it's consistent imagery. I'm not sure that it's meant to be anything more than that. So at, right there, there's a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And a mighty angel was crying out, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? So this word scroll is the word, it's the Greek word Bible. It, it just means book. And so it can be translated scroll or it can be translated 
uh, so a book, what we know as a book is more like this, shape and format. This really became the standard like in the second and third centuries. Another word sometimes used called codex. But it was this technology of having a binding and then having all these pages flip on it. This was like, this was like the computer back then. It was just huge. that You could put so much stuff now together. A scroll was limited in size, and so they had to be broken up in parts. You know, so... But they were both called, it's the word biblos. They were both called biblos because they contained text. But they looked very differently. So um, that's just important to note for a different part of this book. For um, some of the, when I was going through and studying, some things say that because the scroll was written on both sides, it was a mortgage. It wasn't just like a regular book. And that's why this pertains to who is the owner of the universe. That, that has been said, yeah, that those things could be written on front and back so that you could, some people say that the front would have had something more general, and then as the scroll is being opened, the inside contained the details of the deed, maybe an inheritance or, or something of that nature that had um, the rights, uh, maybe the land or rights of rulership or something. That, that's been a, an idea where the image uh, came from. Not, not that would be a valid, very valid possibility that that's what we're supposed to think. And it could also be that it's me- it was meant to be like a book and it had seven seals and I couldn't, I couldn't open it until all seven were broken. The scroll imagery of the thing might have been something like there's a, there's a seal here and then mm-hmm. it goes and then there's another seal and I'm opening it. You can only open so much at a time. Yeah, but there is, there is measures of... And that, that fits the vision of the book a little bit better, where a seal is open, and then there's stuff that happens. It reveals something, and then it keeps going. So that's very possibly the image is meant to be more of a, of a scroll and not a book. And that's why translators chose to go with the image of uh, the word scroll instead of book. Okay. So there's a book up there, and maybe it's like the deed to something. That's, that's a big question mark though, uh, and the Revelation doesn't tell us what the book means. Right? Under Roman law, um, at the time, wills or inheritance was sealed with seven <coughs> That's another contributing uh, idea to the, it could be a, it's linked to something like that. And so that's one question we have when we see images and ideas, how do we understand them, right? Where do we get the information to interpret them for us to understand and when John was writing, that's the question. What was he expecting people who were receiving it to know? So we're, we're making good guesses. And we need to understand that we're making guesses. Because earlier in the book, chapter 1, when he talks about lampstands, he says, oh, and the lampstands are the churches. We're not left guessing in that one. But wherever we are, wherever we have guesses, or it's unsure, just take it as a, just hold it lightly. Don't, don't be like, well, that's what this is, and so now I'm going to keep going with it. Just be like, that's a good possibility. We try to gather as much information as possible. So the written in, inside and out, for instance, um, if you want to turn to Ezekiel chapter uh, 2. I'll wait for you there. Ezekiel 2 is interesting because there's also going to be a vision about a, a scroll or a book. 
and he's going to be asked to eat it. And then what he speaks is presumably the word that God gave him. And so the, in, in the imagery of Ezekiel, he's eating a book, a scroll, and then he speaks it out. The same thing happens later in Revelation chapter, I want to say 11 or 10 or somewhere. Um, we're halfway through the book. John also is called to eat a, a book, a scroll, and speak it out. So they're, they're close to time. But look at the detail of the writ written in and out um, that, we, that um, Marianne had just noted. So 2 verse 8, But you, son of man, speaking to Ezekiel, hear what I say to you. Don't be rebellious like that rebellious house, speaking of Israel. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and the scroll of a book, or a book, was in the hand. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on front and on the back, and were written on it words of lamentation, mourning, and woe. So some, he goes and he eats it. Some have uh, proposed that the, this is the only two times we have in the Bible written in front and back. The imagery could refer to a law document of some sort. It could also refer to a prophetic document, as in the case of Ezekiel. This is, that wasn't about a law situation, mm -hmm. where John could be, again, using Old Testament imagery to describe um, that what's, what's in here has judgment pronouncements mm -hmm. of, of the, the one in charge. This also fits. So they all fit, right? Mm -hmm. uh, just keep that in mind. What fits really well with, with this idea that there is pronouncements of judgment is that when the seals are broken, that's what comes out. These judgments on the earth for the inhabitants who were supposed to be acting one way. And then there was, there was no one worthy to enact it, to take possession. And so there, it could be a combination of all these, all these ideas that John is using to get us to see the grandiose moment. We're, we're in the throne room, the creator God, the one who does have authority over everything, and there is this binding document that uh, no one is able to open. No one has been found worthy. And some, some think that it's um, related to the law, related to pronouncements of judgment, but no one is able to do it. And maybe referring back to this idea of what man lost when God created man to subdue and rule over the earth. And there is this waiting for another human being to, to do this. And Jesus would be a human that could possibly do that. So that's, that's where we come to now with the description of, of the Lamb. So if you're back in Revelation 5, let's, yeah, let's, let's do this first paragraph here. Uh, we, just, we just noticed a book and verse 2, who is worthy to open the scroll and its seals. I'll make another interesting note about the seals. Uh, open the scroll and then break its seals. This could be another hint that there actually is something to the background of, of law, Marianne. And the reason I say that is because this is the only time when the book is described here, this book with the seals, that the seals are going to be broken. This is the word to loosen, to undo, to untie, or to break. So when John the Baptist says to Jesus, no, I'm not even worthy to get down and untie your sandals, that's the word, Greek word. It's the same word. And so... It could just mean smash and break open, but if you do like untie or release, then you get more of a sense of like there is only one person who has the authority to then enact whatever this was sealing. Does that make sense? It's not just no one is strong enough to break the seal because no one has strong enough fingers to smash it. It conveys more the idea of authority and power, not so much strength. So break, even though breaking is a good idea, 
when you think of it like unleash it, unleash it, or release it, then you have more the idea of we're talking about position and authority and, and rule. So it, it confirms the idea that, that whatever this document does, there, there's authority behind it that's going to be revealed. Yeah, Paul. Verse 2, when the angel says, who is worthy, is that an accurate word, worthy? Yep. That's the same word from verse 11 in chapter 4, and same one in verse 9 of chapter 5. Well, the creator God is worthy to receive power and authority, and then the lamb is worthy also to receive the same quality. So that, that links this together. The worthiness of the lamb now is tied to this, to this moment, uh, at least in this vision. So verse 3, no one in heaven on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. From now on, this, this loosening language is gone. It's just about opening and looking and seeing what it has. I began to just weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. I notice my Bible has them all capitalized. I don't know if you do. Those words, lion and root. And that's just, you know, subjective. But it's because we're. this is Jesus. This is deity, not just a human, not just a special person. He has indeed conquered. That's our key word for this book. It appears everywhere. The church has supposed to conquer, and it's supposed to conquer as the Lamb conquers, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. He has indeed conquered. So we talked about this, that we're going to see now how the Lamb conquered. We're expecting, you know, victory, power, defeat of the enemy type of stuff with conquer, but this is where it gets flipped on its head. How the lamb conquered. It's dead. So here it goes. Verse 6. Between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders I saw the lamb standing as though it had been slain, or as slain. Maybe be better. Does anybody have like an older translation that has just as slain? We have all as though. As though almost hints at, kind of like it, it, it looks like it is, but it's really not. But it is just, it's standing as if slain, which is meant to be like, a, that doesn't make sense, right? Nothing that's dead is standing unless it's propped up. But that's the idea here, is Jesus conquered, the lamb conquered, and he did it by dying. That's the big shocker in this, in this vision. That's the, that's, that's the paradox, is how does a slain object stand? How does it have power to stand if it is indeed slain? So that, hence why the translation has, maybe it's supposed to be as though to try to release some of that tension, but that's exactly the implication. He's standing, and he's slain. And he's actually going to be able to go do something in a minute, so he's not dead. So it's seven horns, seven eyes, seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. We did talk about that a little bit last week. We'll not spend too much time on that right now, unless we need to re-clarify that. Do we want to revisit that? Okay, well then we'll just, we'll, it just represented the Holy Spirit and the Spirit in the churches. We talked about that imagery here. Uh, then he went, and it says, he took the scroll. And I want to, I told you to look at that word receive. Worthy are you to receive honor and glory 
What's interesting in, in Greek, that same word can mean take, which is the opposite, right? Uh, but that it's the same word here. And we're going to see the worthy are you, O creator God, and then worthy are you, lamb, to receive, to receive. And this is what the lamb does. He goes and he receives, or he takes, he seizes. It's a very interesting link. Worthy are you, and so he goes and he takes the scroll, the four living creatures, and everyone falls down, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. There again, that image is given to us, what it represents. It's not talking about spiritual incense, it's just representing prayers offered up to God, right? So when we do have meanings for images, it's very helpful. So this this lamb that is is slain, but yet is still alive, because it goes and it takes the scroll, it receives it. Worthy are you, sings, is the song. Worthy are you. So now you are worthy to take, and there's that same word, to receive. To receive, to take the scroll and to open its seal. So why is the lamb worthy of such position, of being like the other most high? It says here, worthy for. So that's the explanation. And there are going to be three reasons why the lamb is worthy. First one, you were slain. Worthy are you, for you were slain. Again, in the, the general idea is that um, this is meant to be subversive. This is meant to be strange. This is meant to not be like normal, right? It should be worthy are you because you went and defeated the giant. Worthy are you because you conquered. You, you punched the dragon in the face and you knocked him out in one punch. Worthy are you because you're so strong and powerful. That, that's what we should be expecting to come out of this moment. Worthy are you because... You are so much stronger than any other created thing. Worthy are you, and we're waiting for that. Instead, we get, worthy are you, you were slain. You were killed. And you were killed in humiliating fashion, like a lamb. Like this pathetic, innocent, but yet kind of like simple, weak imagery. Not a strong, a lion ripping off every prey's head before it falls down dead in the, in the heat of battle. You know what I mean? Not, not something like that. We know how he died, mocked, walked through the streets, soldiers spitting on him, punching him in the face, like, I dare you to figure out who it was who hit you right now, with a crown of thorns on his head, you know, humiliated. And I usually bring up the idea that he was most likely nude as he's raised up for complete humiliation. It wasn't like, we're going to beat you to death, but we're going to cover your private parts so that, you know, you don't get embarrassed. No, that was the whole point. Disgusting. This, per this person, this is what will happen to anybody who does this to the authorities uh, at large. That, that's the, meant to be the message. And here it says, you are worthy to take control, to receive the scroll, to take open and open this binding, powerful document, Marianne, or to exercise rule, or to be able to spell out the judgments that come out of this scroll. You're worthy because you died. That's what makes you worthy. So that is the shocker here. Because the death of Jesus wasn't simply him surrendering to circumstance. It was surrendering to the law of God, to the will of God. It was in our place. It was a redeeming death. It was an obedient death. It was a death that Jesus did out of faith and trust in the Heavenly Father. It was the ultimate display of obedience to God that is what we all lack, right? That's exactly why we are all 
in judgment before God is because we do not obey. So that, that death represents so much more. So worthy are you to be that one which will exercise God's rule. Worthy are you to raise up humanity. Worthy are you to be that righteous man because you were slain. It represents his whole life in a sense, right? That act of being slain. Just that one word. It's so short that it's meant for us to go, what? How is that? How does that, right? It's for us to spell this out for us right, right here as we're doing. It's made for us to, to think. It's purposely short and concise. Worthy are you for you were slain. And then we think about the implications of that. So you were slain. And then, so that's one point. The redeeming, substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross for us. That makes him worthy to be the true ruler of the world. Second, it says, by your blood, you ransom people for God. So then, uh, this is linked, obviously, to, to his death. But his blood then redeems a host of others. You are the one who can rule. Your blood now is the payment, sacrifice for all these people. Every tribe and language and people and nation. So there's your second. You died, that made you worthy. Second, your blood atoned for, purchased, or released from bondage, now freed towards God. They were ransomed, bought, released as a vivid imagery there of these creatures that could not free themselves and then third you, you did all that release and then there's there's this third one you have made them a kingdom and priests you have made them a kingdom we talked quite a bit about this last week man I, I always feel like if this could be 45 minutes longer this would be much more fun I just feel like I feel like I, we just got the engine warm right we just got in the car it was sitting here. I don't know. That's how I feel right now. I feel like I'm, I'm ready now to go out on the trip. But verse, uh, verse 10, that's, that's kind of what we spent some time talking about last week. This past action of Jesus creating people, this kingdom aspect, that's what makes him worthy now to enact the scene of chapters 4 and 5. So how this relates to us is we talked about the future and present aspect of the kingdom of God. A little bit last week and and here we are this is really describing something Jesus did already not something he's going to do right these are in the past tense you have made them a kingdom this ties in with chapter 1 where um, chapter 1 verse 5 in this in the description of Jesus is the faithful witness firstborn of the dead here he is the ruler of kings on earth right a small hint of what is Spelled out in chapter 5. He is the true ruler of the earth. All these pagan kingdoms, but he, he has been established as the true king. To him who loves us and has freed us, there's our ransom payment from our sins by his blood and made us already, right now, kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory, dominion forever and ever. So there was a little hint there in the introduction of what we would see that Jesus has established... A kingdom. He is presently a ruler over world affairs. <clears throat> so that left us with a question about present versus future of the kingdom of God. What one thing we left at last week was there is a difference between how Jesus rules now and how he ru will rule in the future. Those are not the same thing, but there is a present dimension to what Jesus did on the cross that affects us and it is called the kingdom of God and this is the question 
for the book. And what I mean by that is it affects how we understand what's happening in this book. And so what I'm going to repeat today what, what we did last week. There are really two distinct ways for us to go forward from here. We're, I'm going to go one way for our time together. I'm going to approach it and teach it. But I did want to acknowledge there's a distinct difference, which you might be very familiar, if not probably more familiar with. And that is, we'll try to do this in five minutes. So this is not going to be complete. But they, the idea is something along these lines. Uh, this represents 2,000 years ago. The coming of Jesus, his arrival, his death, and his resurrection. question is, what happens afterwards? So here we are at the church. So about 2,000, 2000 um, years have gone by. How does chapters 4 and 5 relate to, to, this, time, to this time frame? So often, and when we read Revelation, for those who take the book as primarily a book about the future of what's going to happen, they take chapters 4 and 5 and onward, because 4 and 5 begin the opening of the seals, they take this entire time frame as referring, as referring to seven years of uh, tribulation. So that chapters 4 and 5 begin a period of seven years that the rest of the visions describe that will occur on the earth at some point after the church has been taken off of the earth and there will be this, this period here of, of the seven years and then at the end of which... Jesus will make a uh, he'll, he'll make a come here for us but he'll only come halfway but after the seven years, after this time frame he comes and lands with his feet on the ground and then there's a, a series of things that happen but however, for, just, to, just to describe this is how you might be very familiar with this this is how usually the book is described in movies and in novels that this book refers to a period of time in the future Usually people describe it as the church leaving. Sometimes uh, there, are, there are groups that have the church here throughout that time frame. So these are two possibilities. There's actually a third one that people speculate about. Which one is it? Is it the middle of the seven years? Is it after the seven years? Is it before? That's under the framework that this book is describing something that occurs in the future from our perspective. Make sense so far? And there goes the five minutes. But what I'm what I'm uh, proposing here that we think of is that four and five describe what Jesus accomplished on the cross at this moment here, right? That this oh, who is worthy to open the pen? Four and five to uh, at the cross is the moment where the Lamb conquered, made a kingdom, purchased people from the earth, and is exercising a a reign or rule so that the, the expectations here are a list of very clear expectations for the kingdom of God spelled out in the Old Testament kingdom of God in Daniel 2 and 7 two visions of uh, beastly kingdoms that are supposed to be ruled over a human the promise of the son of man that's, that's in this one this is the son of David rules over you can read these later we read Isaiah the description of the, the son of David ruling also, and Ezekiel is also the description of the King David. But they're all describing, and many others, but these are nice representatives, of the kingdom of God coming. And how do we understand what Jesus did? Right, That's been our question. The Gospels describe Jesus and John the Baptist as preaching repentance for the kingdom of God is near, it is arriving. And from the perspective that we just read, the idea is that because Israel rejected Jesus, 
All of these promises get fulfilled in that later period of time, after the church is gone. That's one possibility. Uh, what, I, what I would like to follow through with is, uh, is this is what Jesus has brought into the present, to the past and the present moment. He made a kingdom, and he is the ruler of them and over the earth. And the way he exercises his rule is as a slain lamb, presently. And he will eventually change the way he does his ruling at the end of history when he comes to establish his, his rule in a very more final way. But there is a present aspect to his reign that we live in that's very different, that was very unexpected. It's the lamb's rule. The lamb's ruling by dying, by being submissive, in, I guess if you can think of it in those terms. And what that does is chapters 6 and onward is a description of the Lamb's rule over the dragon, over the prostitute, over everything that's happening on earth. And so it's a very different way for us to approach the book. So instead of looking at this book as describing future events entirely, I'm going to propose we read it starting with chapters 4 and 5, Jesus' ascension, receiving of the kingdom, opening this binding document on the earth and beginning to exercise his rule, which means it will be describing things that have taken place, things that are taking place, and things that will take place. It, it covers the entire span of history. From here, from here, all the way till he comes back. That this, that this would be describing this period. So instead of seven years, it's just, it's just trial. And that, that matches really well with the church in the, these two chapters are experiencing, the letters to the churches. You're, you're, you're at the throne room of Satan. You're, you're in distress, and I'm with you. And you have challenges that you need to overcome, just as I overcame, he says at the end of chapter 3. I'm at the throne, I'm at the right hand of the Father, and I invite you to do the same. Overcome, just as I have overcome, and you will sit with me. And so it's a message to the church, church past, church present, and church future, of what, what to do during this time frame. So it's, it is going to be different, but we'll walk through it to see what that looks like. Okay, so I wanted to repeat that. Good, we, we just about did it. And we can, there's a lot to unpack from that. Okay, I'm sure you have a question or two uh, about that. I'd be happy to take those. I did want to kind of formally end, so if you wanted to make your way up there, you're more than welcome to, but if, there, if there's any questions about that, we can certainly tackle them a little bit here and a little bit afterwards or in any other way you would like.